Well, good morning again. We'll be kind of jumping right in and continuing in 1 John, where we have been, um, as I was thinking about it this morning when I've preached, where we've been for five years now. <laughs> in some sense, I beat John, I guess. <laughs> Colossians has been, what, three years? So uh, maybe I hold the record. Um, book of 1 John. We're going to start off, well, let, let's, let's look at verses uh, 18 of chapter two, 2 through verse 3 of chapter 3. Let's read that together, turn to it. I'll read it, you read along. First John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... Even now many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth." Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous... You know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's pray. Father and God, we thank you that we can come this morning because of what Jesus has done, because he has come at your command, because he has lived a perfect life as one of us, because he died a sacrificial death that was acceptable to you, and he's risen again to show that he overcomes death, that death had no hold on him. And in him we have life. Thank you that we can come. Thank you that we can read your word. Thank you that we have this gift in our language so readily available. Help us now as we contemplate it, as we think about it, as we study it, that we might see it for what it is, in its truth and in its meaning for us, and in it that glorifies Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. So, of course, you know, it's been about six months since I last had the opportunity to 
to, to open First John to you. And, and so we'll back up a little bit to where we were. And we had looked in some detail uh, at verses 18 through 28, uh, where John has been carefully delineated the differences between those inside the church and those outside of it. In other words, those who had left the church. And he labored to dissect the opposing views of those two groups. Uh, really what he does in these verses is to give a careful analysis of each, what each group believes about Jesus, of their respective doctrinal beliefs of the person of Jesus Christ. And we talked last time about the two questions that Jesus had asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. The first question he asked them as they were together at one point, he, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And we remember that they told him that people believed him to be John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or some other Old Testament prophet. The second question he asked them was, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered on behalf of the disciples there, and he answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, those opposing answers by those two groups are respectively really the same answers given by the two groups here in verses 18 to 23 of chapter 2 in 1 John. In verses 18 through 19, and then skipping to 22 in the first half of 23, John defines one group, and he calls them Antichrist. That's the group that has left the church, those who deny Jesus as God and Savior. In verses 20 and 21, and then the second half of verse 23, John encourages the second group, those who are still in the church, those who confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as Messiah, the Savior. And don't we see the same distinction today? Many will say that Jesus was a kind man, a great teacher, a prophet, but they deny him as Lord and Christ. But Christians claim him to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, in fact, God himself. And so nothing has changed in 2,000 years. The two views are still opposed to each other. We see that uh, in these verses, John is given theological detail, doctrinal detail, to understand the radical difference, the complete opposition, really, of those who confess Christ and those who deny Christ. So let's rephrase a little bit what John has been telling his readers. As we've said several times during the last few messages, John is giving his, his uh, readers a doctrinal test in the second half of chapter 2, and we called it a test of Christian root. It's a theological test on which the three practical tests of verses 3 through 17 really depend. And he gave us those practical tests of obedience to Christ, love of others, abstaining from idolatry of the world, and we called them tests of Christian fruit. And we likened all of that to a tree, and we said that we can identify a tree by its fruit, but more profoundly, we need to identify a tree by its root. That it cannot have the right fruit if it does not first have the right root. And so we recall that John has told us in these verses of the doctrinal falsehood and the sub subsequent practical impurity of unbelievers, those who deny that Jesus is God in Christ. They denied that Jesus is Christ, and therefore they were not just denying the Son, but also denying God the Father, and therefore they are antichrist. He says in verse 23 that nobody who denies the Son has the Father. So there is the doctrinal error of the antichrists, denying Jesus as God and Christ. Then their practical error was to leave the church, and we can assume that they also fell into these other practical errors of not obeying Christ, of not loving others, and then collapsing into worldly idolatry 
that John had warned the church about in verses 15 through 17. In verse 15, he warns his readers, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, since the Antichrist deny the Father by, by their denial of the Son, they then were at least on the brink of idolatry, and really, in that case, idolatry becomes a foregone conclusion. If you don't have the one true God, then you will have a multitude of false gods. Okay? If you don't have the one true God, you are going to end up with a multitude of false gods. They were not abiding in the Son and in the Father. Since the Antichrist did not abide in God, they obviously had nowhere to turn but to abide in the world. John warned his readers against the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life in verse 16 of chapter 2. And he told them, these things are not from God, but from the world which is passing away. So Antichrists then and now deny Christ, deny the Father, and miss out on eternal life in Christ because they pursue the things that pass away. After their doctrinal failure, antichrists have no other course than to fall into disobedience, hatred of others, hatred of Christ and the church, and the idolatry of the world, resulting in the eternal death that it brings as it passes away. Now, it harkens back to Adam and Eve. What did they do? They fell to an idol. The apple, as it were, was an idol. And as they bowed to it, they were led into death just as God had warned them. He didn't pull any punches. He told them, eat this, you shall surely die. And so they fell to an idol. And so the false doctrine of the Antichrist brings about death. Remember verse 17, the world is passing away and all its lusts. But then John offered a contrast as he reminded his readers of the doctrinal purity of Christians, of the Christian belief in verses 20 through 27. Verse 20, Christians have been anointed by the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, and therefore they have a knowledge, an understanding of spiritual truth. He says there, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. They have the, the understanding of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ, the long-promised Messiah. Verse 21, he says, I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Remember, remember, the Antichrists have believed a lie, the ultimate lie, really. Look at verses 22 and first part of 23. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I'm sorry, verse 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Alternatively, Christians know the truth. They know the ultimate truth because of their anointing by the Holy Spirit and the true knowledge that that brings. Second half of verse 23, the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So John drives home the point that in Jesus and only in Jesus, there is relationship with God. A person or a congregation that denies this is Antichrist. Christian doctrine results in life. That's second half of verse 17, whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then verses 24 and 25, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. There is the result of abiding in the Son and the Father. It's eternal life with God. Now, 
We'll take a quick moment. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 3. Verse 3. Just that one verse, but again, as Noah pointed out in Sunday school, it's important to lay your eyes on it. And again, this is Noah had us in chapter 17 of the Gospel of John this morning, Christ's high priestly prayer, the prayer he prayed the night before he was crucified. And he prayed for his people during that prayer. But in the first part of that prayer, verse 3, John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says this as he's praying to the Father. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus puts eternal life in the context of relationship with the Father and the Son. And John, in 1 John here, really is doing the same thing. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So why has John spent this time in detail explaining the difference between those who have left the church, antichrists, and Christians who have remained in the church? Well, he answers this in verse 26. He says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. The antichrists left the church, but had continued to spread their lies, trying to, de- trying to deceive those who are still in the church those who profess Christ, trying to sway them away from the doctrinal truth of who Jesus is. Remember Jesus' questioning of the the disciples in Matthew 16, but who do you say that I am? And the the antichrists, the non-believers, trying to lead the believers away into eternal death. However, John's teaching them about where to find life, doctrinal life, practical life, ultimately eternal life. Now, as he teaches them, he gives them two lines of defense, two doctrinal lines of defense as they follow Christ and as they maintain their witness to him being God and Christ. And John Stott called these safeguards against heresy. Now, this first safeguard, this first line of defense is given in verse 24. In the first part of the verse, John gave a command saying, as for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. And then he follows it with a promise in the second half of the verse. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide uh, in the Son and the Father. He tells them to abide in, in other words, to remember, to practice, to remain in, to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ that has been taught to them since the beginning, since the ministry of Jesus, since the spread of the church throughout the known world, the message that was taught by all of the apostles. He's telling them to abide in the word of God, to abide in the living incarnate Christ. And that if they do that, they will be remaining in the Son and the Father. Their faith and their practice will be true. What is this gospel that they've heard from the beginning? Well, look back at chapter 1. A little bit of a review today. Look back at chapter 1 of 1 John, verse 7, the second half of verse 7. And the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. There is the gospel that they've been taught from the beginning. And then also in verse 9 of chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the first couple verses of chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you. Tells them very clearly, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, see, he's not talking about perfection, He's talking about the practice, the righteous practice of life. If anyone does sin, 
we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, we noted last time that John Stott uh, said the following. This is a good quote. It's a good summary of this idea. So here's, here's Stott. What you have heard from the beginning is the gospel, the, the apostolic teaching, the original message which had been preached. It had not changed and had changed and would not change. They must see that it remains in them. It would not do so automatically. They must take steps to ensure that it does. Christians should always be conservative in their theology. To have itching ears, ever running after new teachers, listening to anybody and never arriving at a knowledge of the truth is a characteristic of the terrible times which will, shall come in the last days, 2 Timothy. The continuous obsession for the latest ideas is a mark of the Athenian, not the Christian, Acts chapter 17. Christian theology is anchored not only to certain historical events culminating in the saving career of Jesus, but to the authoritative apostolic witness to and interpretation of these events. Let me repeat that. We're still quoting Stott here. That's an important sentence, I think. Christian theology is anchored not only to certain historical events culminating in the saving career of Jesus, but to the authoritative apostolic witness to and interpretation of these events. The, the apostles all were there to interpret and teach what all of this about Jesus means. Stott continues, the Christian can never weigh anchor and launch out into the deep of speculative thought, nor can he forsake the primitive teaching, primitive teaching of the apostles for subsequent human traditions. The apostolic testimony is directed essentially to the Son. That is why it will keep them true to him if they remain true to it. Moreover, they will remain in the Son and in the Father in the sense of experiencing an intimate spiritual communion with both. To remain in God, or to abide in, and to have God are virtually identical in meaning. End quote. So the first line of defense Abide in what you've learned from the beginning, the gospel of Christ. The second line of defense is found in verse 27 of chapter 2. John reminds them of what he first mentioned in verse 20. Verse 20 says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. In verse 27, he expounds on this and says, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, at first glance, these verses might be misinterpreted by saying there's no need for teachers or preachers in the church today. However, that's not what John means. On the contrary, he himself is teaching them. Remember as well that he said to them in verses 20 and 21 that they know the truth, and it's because the Holy Spirit has anointed them to understand it. It's helpful here to recall what Jesus told his disciples the night before he was crucified. Let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. This is still the night before he's crucified, John chapter 16, and it's the chapter before the chapter where he prays to the Father that night. So John chapter 16 
verses, let's start at verse 7. We'll go through 15. He says, But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So the Holy Spirit's going to teach them further after Christ has gone. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So Ian Hamilton makes this observation. He says, quote, true, true Christians have been anointed by the Holy One, the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit of truth, he indwells every believer, Romans 8, 9, giving us the knowledge of the truth. Verse 21 here in 1 John. When John says in verse 27, you have no need that anyone should teach you, he does not mean that Christians do not need spiritual teachers. The risen, ascended Lord has given the gift of pastors and teachers to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, Ephesians chapter 4. Indeed, John is himself writing to instruct his children in the faith. The point he is making is that true believers, indwelt by God's spirit of truth, do not need anyone to tell them how wrong false teaching is. They know that no lie is of the truth, verse 21. Thus, the indwelling Holy Spirit sensitizes the child of God to spiritual truth and gives him an ability to discern error when it poses as truth, end quote. Well, then, as we look into verse 28, John speaks gently to them. Once again, he addresses them as children. He's done that a lot of times in this letter, uh, and he gives them very simple instruction here. He says, Now, little children, abide in him so that... When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, this simple instruction in verse 28 begins with a simple command, and it ends with a simple promise. The simple command is to abide in Christ. The simple promise is that if we abide in him, we will be confident and not ashamed when he comes again. How terrifying, let me ask you, how terrifying would it be to shrink from him at his coming. To be filled with dread and fear when Christ returns to earth. Non-believers, non-Christians will have that experience. People who deny Christ as God and Savior, who die outside of faith in him, experience that. But as we abide in him, we may have confidence that when he comes, we won't shrink back, but we'll open our arms step forward and rush to him at his coming. So how do we abide in him? By following those two lines of defense in verses 24 and 27. As we abide in the gospel of Christ, that his blood cleanses our sin, and as we count on his spirit abiding in us, then we are uh, led into that confidence, that assurance that will cause us to shout for joy at his coming. 
verse 24, the Apostle John has commanded them and us to make sure the gospel message abides in us, that we hold dear to the truth of the gospel. In verse 25, he reminds his readers, he reminds us that God's promise to the Christian is eternal life. In verse 27, he promises his readers that the anointing from the Holy Spirit will abide in them, that it will teach them and us about everything that is true and it is not a lie. And in verse 28, he encourages them and us to abide in Christ, to trust him, to obey him, to love him, to serve him, to worship him, so that when he returns, we will have assurance of who we are in him and have no reason to be ashamed. So there's kind of our review. We're going to move forward a little bit. And as we get into verses 29 through verse 3 of chapter 3, we see that John's finalizing a summary of how a Christian handles the practical issues of Christian life based on the doctrine of who Jesus is, of how a Christian confirms their profession of Christ through the application of their belief, how they live it out in the real world. From a practical sense, it's something of a summary and review of John's previous, con previous conclusions about how Christians ought to live their lives. Look at verse 29 there in chapter 2. John writes, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now notice the word practice. He's not calling us to be perfect. We still sin. But those who practice righteousness, we can be sure that they're born of him. So we recall all the practical instruction that he's given us in chapter 2 already. We recall that idea of obeying Christ, loving others, abstaining from the lusts of the world in the first part of the chapter, of knowing the Father through knowing the Son, and further the ideas of remaining and abiding in the gospel in the last half of the chapter. At the same time, in these few verses, we see that there's more than just a summary of abiding in Christ. John is be also beginning to reveal a deeper layer of understanding regarding who we are in Christ. In other words, not only what we do as Christians, but also who we are as Christians. It's an important transition of ideas that leads us really into the depth of the ocean of God's love for his people. And, it, it, and this is where Noah's teaching this morning in Sunday school really, really helps us. Um, it's a glorious moment of praise, a moment of wonder, and really of doxology of who Christians are in Christ. Now, as we've said in the past, John is like a sculptor or a woodcarver. He, he continually cuts away layer by layer to give a deeper understanding of who God is and who we are in Christ. Maybe another way to think about it, he's like a 3D printer. That's, that's one of the hot things these days, right, a 3D printer. And so John gives us like a layer of detail, and then he comes across again in another layer of detail. And as he does that, he builds this like almost three-dimensional picture from different perspectives, if you will, of who we are in Christ, of who Christ is. Um, he makes an application, and he circles back with deeper understanding, another perspective. And he does it really again here. In verse 29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So there are two ideas in this verse that are in direct relationship to each other, each other. If you know the first thing, then you also, by extension, know the second thing. If you believe the first supposition, then you have to believe the second supposition. You can be confident in it. You can be sure of the second half of the verse. 
If you know something about Jesus Christ, namely that he's righteous, then you know by extension something about his followers, about Christians, namely that because of their obedience, we can be confident that they are born of him. How do you know that about them? You know it by the way they live their lives. We have a saying in our culture that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We understand that that means the child is very similar in many ways to their parent. We have a similar idea here in verse 29. Knowing that Christ is righteous, we know that the Christians who practice righteousness are really Christians, really are God's children. It is evidence of what they claim, evidence of their profession of Jesus Christ as Messiah and Lord. It's a summary of what John has been teaching about those practical tests throughout chapter 2. Christians practice what they preach. But notice the verse does not say this. It does not say, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone else who practices righteousness has been born of their own righteousness. Rather, when the Christian practices righteousness, it points to God. It points to Christ. It testifies to the truth of their profession, that they are born of God. Now recall verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. There's a little bit of that idea. There, there's this, uh, the beginning of that idea of being born of him, born of God. It's an anointing by the Holy One. Also in verse 27, but that anointing that you received from him abides in you. There it is again, something of God put into us, being born of God. James Boyce says this. In the last words of chapter 2, John says that it's by doing righteousness that the one who is really born of God demonstrates that he's born of him. The idea here is of inherited family traits. God is righteous. Consequently, everyone who is born of God must show traits of that righteousness. End quote. And this is where John begins to sculpt and to carve down deeper in the understanding of who Christians are. He says they are born of him. And in fact, you know, to me... Think of Mount Rushmore. Think of Crazy Horse. They're both in the Dakotas, right, Zach? I think you've probably seen them. When, 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 they make Mount, when they made Mount Rushmore, they didn't get out hammers and chisels. They drilled holes and planted dynamite and blew the face off the side of the mountain, right, to, to create this thing, to reveal it. And I, to me, that's the picture I have when John says this here, that Christians are born of God. Um, the Greek for this word, born, is the, ver- is the verb, and I'll, I'll mispronounce it, gegenitai, and it has the meaning to beget or to bring forth. It indicates that the believer has been passive in the process of this begetting. In other words, God is the active one and works on a person to beget them. Thayer's Greek lexicon says that the verb is used somewhat peculiarly in both the gospel according to John and in this letter of 1 John, where the idea is of God conferring upon men the nature and disposition of his sons, imparting to them spiritual life, i.e. by his own holy power, prompting and persuading souls to put faith in Christ and live a new life consecrated to himself. God begets his children. Now be careful not to be confused by the word everyone in verse 29. Uh, It says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness 
is born of him. But let's think about that word, everyone. At first glance, this could seem to say to us that anybody who does some nice things to another person, who pays their taxes, who doesn't break the speed limit, is righteous and has been born of God and is a child of God. However, that's a false idea. John has already carefully dissected the difference between true believers and false believers. He has carefully explained the difference between Christians and Antichrist. He has labored this throughout this chapter. Also, we need to look at the Greek word for everyone. It's the word pass. The transliteration is P-A-S. And the word means all, every, the whole, every kind of. In other words, it has the meaning of all in the sense of each and every part that applies. The emphasis is the total picture, uh, uh, is of the total picture, but one piece at a time. It indicates the individual pieces that make the total picture. Okay, so as I was thinking about this yesterday, I thought, or the day before, I thought, okay, I come up with these weird pictures, weird analogies. I thought, okay, let's think about my lawnmower engine. It has a lot of pieces and parts, nuts and bolts. Um, but there are a lot of pieces, parts, nuts and bolts of lawnmower engines in this world, but all of the other ones are not part of my lawnmower engine. And so when I can say every piece of my lawnmower engine, I'm talking about the pieces that make up my lawnmower engine, okay? That's weird, right? But it, do you get the picture? So all, every kind of, in the sense of each and every part that applies, I believe what John's indicating here is everyone as individuals in the group of those who claim to be Christians, those who claim Christ as Savior, everyone who as an individual is in the church claiming the name of Christ. So John's not suddenly saying that we consider anybody who does nice things to be born of God. Rather, he's saying that we can be confident that those in the church who claim Jesus as the Christ are truly born of God. They really are God's people in Christ. And that's validated when we see that they are practicing righteousness in their lives. It's evident, it's evidence that they are born of him, that God has begotten them as his children. It's God that does the acting here. So for the person who professes to be a Christian believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus, we can rightly expect to see evidence of a changed life. They will live in newness of life. They will exhibit a righteousness as they practice the walk of life. They will take their doctrinal profession of who Christ is, and they'll abide in that truth. They'll abide in that profession, and they will make practical application of their faith as they live out their lives in this world. We will see their Christian fruit and judge them by it, just as others should expect to see our Christian fruit and rightfully judge us by it or not. So verse 29 is what about what Christians do. They practice righteousness, and it's about why they do it. They do it because of who they are, because they are born of God. Do you see the transition John's making here? It's about what they do. It's about obedience. It's about righteousness. But he gives us so much, all of a sudden, as he transitions to this idea of who we are in Christ. Who are God's children? They are Christians. But a person, again, may say, wait a minute, everybody is God's child. Well, James Montgomery Boyce writes this. A generation ago, to quote him, a generation ago it was popular to speak of the message of the Bible as being summarized under the two phrases, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. 
the phrases express the thought that all men are equally children of God and therefore brothers within one divine family. All that was needed, so the thinking went, was for men and women to realize this and live accordingly. In reacting to such views, it must be acknowledged that there are such concepts, there are such concepts as the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man in the Bible. But the point must be added in order to be accurate that neither of these apply to all men, to all people, to all women, to all kids. Um, brotherhood, um, brotherhood is a concept reserved for Christians only, Boyce continues. These have become brothers and sisters to one another, but not to everyone, though they do have a responsibility to all men. Similarly, the fatherhood of a God applies only to those who have been reborn into God's spiritual family through faith in Jesus Christ. These points have been evident in John's letter in several earlier sections, especially in John's use of the words father and children. But now he seems to make the contrast especially sharp, as in these verses, he directs a challenge to those who are indeed God's special children and breaks out into near rhapsody at the thought of what God is doing and will yet do for them. End quote. So John's given a lot of detail in chapter 2 about what a Christian believes and what a Christian does. In other words, how they live their lives as an application of what they believe. But are you starting to see the transition in verse 29, the idea of who a Christian is, based on what God has done to them, what he's done for them. Now, I imagine that everybody in this room has, at some time or another, read the creation accounts in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And in chapter 1 of Genesis, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And a little bit later, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we read, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Who did the breathing first? God did. He breathed life into us. God made you. God made me. He is the creator. And he has been pleased to make us in his own image. However, our sin has killed us. God warned Adam not to eat the apple. God told Adam that if he did, he would certainly die. He would die to God. He would be bound in his sin. He would no longer know God in the intimate way that he had. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 3 that all people have sinned. Everybody. Every one of us. And then in Romans 6, he tells us that the payment for sin is death. We've all died to God. But John has showed us here that God begets his children anew in Christ. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5, we'll start at verse 17. And we'll go through verse 21. Paul writing to the Christian believers, to the church, in Corinth, he even has comments here to people who are not believers yet, but 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 through 21, Paul wrote this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
he is a new creature. And Christ equals new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these new things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him, the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul tells us that it's in Christ that we are made new creatures. There is the gospel that John has given us. Paul tells Christian believers, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. There is the obedience that John has taught us about in chapter 2. Now an ambassador does what his or her king wants him to do. They are obedient. They have been given a message to proclaim and to act upon. That's what an ambassador does. They've been given a message to proclaim and a message to act upon. That's what Christ has done for us. John has emphasized us in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Our obedience, our ambassadorship to non-believers is a testimony of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us, his people. He has saved us from the penalty of our sin. And our ambassadorship is a call. It's not just a witness, but it's a call to the non-believer to put their faith in Christ as well so that they too will be saved from God's wrath against their sin. In fact, Paul says to the non-believer here at the, at the end of this passage we read, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He's being an ambassador to the non-believer right there. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is the great trade. Our sin and all our guilt traded for Christ's righteousness. And we are justified in that. Are you trusting Christ today? Are you a new creature in Christ? Have you been born of God? Born again in Christ? John has told us, chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Will you shrink from him in fear and dread and shame on that last day? Maybe today is your very last day on earth. What's going to happen in five minutes, half an hour, later this evening? Is there an out-of-control car coming your way? How about a stroke, heart attack? Maybe, to maybe today's the day you meet Jesus. Are you going to be shrinking from him in fear and shame and dread and guilt? Or will you have confidence in Christ and not shrink away on that glorious day? Trust Jesus today for the forgiveness of your sins. He has lived and died and lives again so that you might be reconciled to God, so that you might have peace, so that you might have life, 
and have it more abundantly. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so gracious to us, that you have sent our king humbly to us, and that he knows our name. We thank you for this word from the Apostle John, that 2,000 years later, we see what he saw, what the other apostles saw, and we thank you for their apostolic witness, that they wrote it down, that they taught your church, and that that word is carried forth. Help us to carry it forth. Even today, even this week, help us to trust Christ, to know that life is in Christ, to trust him, and to look for that glorious day when we'll rush to him and be cradled in his arms forever. We ask all of it in his name. Amen.